Over the last few months, we've been looking together at the book of 2 Samuel, and we've been calling this series, Your Kingdom Come, because this book shows us God's kingdom being disputed. David is God's anointed king. He's God's Messiah. At this point in history, God's kingdom is seen in Israel through David's rule. But we've seen that rule being opposed. Early on in the book, we saw a rival king from within Israel. His name was Ishbosheth. He was the son of the previous king, Saul. We've also seen opposition come from outside of Israel the Philistines, the Arameans, the Ammonites, and others. We've even seen David's own sin put the kingdom under threat. His adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, her husband. When David repented of that, God had mercy and forgave his sin. But God also said there would be consequences. He said the sword would never depart from David's house. And now the kingdom is under threat from within David's house. Last week, we saw David's son Absalom rebel against his father. And we were told Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. All the way through this, God's faithful people must have been praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Protect the reign of your anointed king. And the most thoughtful among God's people might also have prayed, Not just protect David's reign, but bring the reign of David's greater descendant, the one you promised. God had promised a descendant of David who would reign not just for a few years, but forever. The New Testament tells us that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So today, when you and I pick up 1st and then 2nd Samuel and read these books, When we see David's kingdom rocking and shaking, our prayer is, Lord, your kingdom come. Build the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah. Build the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as we come to this morning's passage, we're led to pray not only your kingdom come, but also your will be done. Turn with me, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. In the church Bible, that's page 320, and in the large print Bibles, 492. Just to remind you of the context here, the immediate context is that Absalom's rebellion has gone public after years of planning in secret. Trumpets have been blown throughout Israel. That was the signal for Absalom's supporters to rise up and gather together. And now Absalom is on his way from Hebron to Jerusalem. That's a distance of about 20 miles, just under 20 miles. So David doesn't have much time. He has only hours to react to what's going on. He decides he's going to leave Jerusalem and he admits he doesn't know where he's going. He's just going the opposite direction from Absalom. 
His plan isn't any more developed than that. We're going to pick up this morning at chapter 15, verse 23. David and his supporters are leaving Jerusalem. And we're going to read through to chapter 16, verse 14. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the forge in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform you. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your Majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell him anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz son of Zadok and Jonathan son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. 
As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out! You murderer! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. This is God's word. And there's one thing which ties this passage together. It's David's submission to God's will. Throughout this whole miserable walk from Jerusalem, David's attitude is, your will be done. This passage teaches us what it looks like to submit to God's will. And it prepares the way for God's ultimate Messiah. The man who would walk this same path. And who would also pray, your will be done. To submit is to yield to another person. To give way to someone else's will. And in the section we just read, we see David submitting to God while making every effort. And we see David remembering God's wrath and his mercy. First of all, submitting to God while making every effort. We join David and his people as they're leaving Jerusalem. They're not leaving to head for a nice estate in the country. That's what our queen does if she leaves London. But David is heading for the wilderness. However, it turns out his friends have brought along something very special. Verse 24 says the priests have brought the Ark of the Covenant of God. We've bumped into this Ark earlier in the book. At this point, it's around 400 years old. It was a box made at God's command. It's a symbol of God's commitment to Israel. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
It's a sign of God's promise. His promise to bless the world through Israel. And God has promised to be present with the ark. To meet his people there. So surely, we would think, having the ark with him is a major plus for David. He can send the message to Israel. God's with me. He's on my side. I've got the special box to prove it. I'm the real king. We might expect David to take that approach, but he doesn't. In fact, he tells the priest to take the ark back. Look again at verse 25. The king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, David's saying, I'm not going to use this ark to try and manipulate God. I'm not going to treat it like a lucky rabbit's foot. This is a gift from God. It's showing we can trust him. I'm not going to try and use it to twist his arm. This is genuine submission to God's will. The ark at this time is such a powerful symbol in Israel. It could probably go a very long way to preserving David's reign if he made use of it. But he sends it away. And the only reason for that is true submission to God's will. If David ever does get back to Jerusalem, it'll be because it was God's will to take him back. Not because David had the right lucky charm with him. But having just seen David's submission, we might be surprised by what comes next. Because having refused to try and manipulate God, now we see David working hard for what he believes to be God's will. Let's notice what he does, and then we'll ask how that fits with submission to God. David is not going to treat the ark as a lucky charm. But he does put a plan in place. He says to the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, since you're going back to Jerusalem, you can be my spies in the city. You can send information to me. Then as the priests and the ark go back, David continues walking away from Jerusalem. He goes up the Mount of Olives. And there he gets a major piece of bad news in verse 31. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now that name, of course, probably means nothing to us. So why was it particularly upsetting to David? It's because Ahithophel had been David's very best advisor. Having Ahithophel on your side was a little bit like having Stuart Broad in your cricket team or Lionel Messi on your football team or Jonathan Ive on your design team if you know who designs the iPhones and everything else. This is a major blow, the loss of Ahithophel. It's a major blow for David to lose Ahithophel's skill. 
And the betrayal involved here might be an even bigger blow for David. In one of his Psalms, David wrote, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. He could have been talking there about Ahithophel. This is a devastating stab in the back. But notice, David doesn't say, oh well, it stinks, but it must be God's will. No. In verse 31, he prays, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And no sooner has David prayed the words than he sees what could be the answer to his prayer standing right in front of him. He meets a man called Hushai the Archite. Hushai is obviously joining in with David's sadness, judging by appearances. He looks a sight. His robe is torn and there's dust on his head, signs of mourning. Now remember, David is in a big hurry here. Absalom is only a few miles away at the very most. David has to leg it to try and get distance behind it. So David can't do a major investigation into how genuine Hushai is. He takes the man at face value. He says, if you want to help me, go back to Jerusalem, offer your services to Absalom, and then try to frustrate Ahithophel's advice. We know he's going to give Absalom good advice, so you try and be more convincing with your bad advice. And on top of that, David says, try to pick up all the information you can. Send it to me through Zadok and Abiathar's sons. Well, Hushai agrees that he will take on this mission. And we're told in verse 37, he arrives in Jerusalem just as Absalom is entering the city. We've seen throughout David's life, he is a very resourceful man. And here, he's doing all he can even as he's hoofing it to get anywhere that's away from Absalom. At the same time, David is using all of his savvy. He's working to try and defeat Absalom. He's giving himself every chance he can think of to come out on top. So as David keeps marching, we have to ask, how does this creative plotting from David, because that's what it is, How does this creative plotting fit with submission to God's will? David's submission is genuine. Only genuine submission would send back the Ark of the Covenant. If David had any desire to try and manipulate God, he would have tried to use the Ark to do it. So David means it when he says, let God do whatever seems good to him. And David makes every effort to get back the throne. He sends spies and double agents into Jerusalem. He's working to try and defeat Absalom's revolt. How does that all fit together? Well, David is not totally in the dark about God's will. David was anointed king by God's prophet, Samuel. And God has not removed that anointing. 
And for all David's indulgence of Absalom over the years, David knows Absalom is just a poser. David knows his son Absalom is all about himself. He doesn't care for Israel. And so David can pray with sincerity, your will be done, Lord. You see the whole picture. Your plans are eternal. Do what pleases you. David can pray that, and at the same time, David can plan and plot for what he believes to be God's will. God has revealed certain things about his will, and David brings those things to bear on the situation. He makes every effort towards what seems right, while still praying sincerely, your will be done, Lord. And if we pause and think about it, isn't this helpful for you and me? First of all, it warns us away from trying to hold God to ransom. We have to live with genuine conviction that he knows best. We have to trust that what seems good to him is truly good. It's the best thing however much it might surprise us or even disappoint us in the middle of it. And at the same time, this is showing us we mustn't use submission to God as a cop-out in our lives. We mustn't use it to get out of making an effort. Just to give you an extreme example of that, Jim Packer tells the story of a lady who would wake every morning And she would lie in bed and ask God whether he wanted her to get up or not. She would lie there until she sensed the voice, as she called it, telling her to get up and get dressed. And then she would ask God about each piece of clothing. Just to make sure he wanted her to put on stockings and shoes that day. I'm sure we recognize that's just stupid. And I know that no one here would be that stupid. But isn't it true that all of us can fall into lesser versions of that kind of stupidity? We can excuse our inactivity by saying, well, we want to submit to God's will. And we're waiting to discover his will. But that's not the biblical way to live. There is so much God has revealed to us about his will. We are to turn from sin. We are to pursue holiness. We are to be be productive instead of being idle. We are to live good lives among the pagans. We are to be ready to explain the hope we have in Christ. We are to seek first his kingdom, not our own. God has revealed all that and so much more. You and I don't need to ask every morning whether God wants us to keep doing those things. We get on with doing them the best we can every day. We make every effort to live according to his will revealed in the Bible. And when we face big decisions in our life, and we all do, like who to marry, where to study, 
what kind of work to look for, where to live. We make those decisions in line with what we know from God's word. We weigh up the options. And we aim to move forward in a way that will honor him. We make every effort to do something that's right, according to what he's revealed. And as we make that effort, we pray very sincerely, your will be done, Lord. I accept your right to overrule all these plans of mine. I accept your right to do something completely different in my life. That's what we're seeing from David here. He's not claiming he knows all that's in God's mind. But he's working for what he believes to be God's will. He does it accepting that God may overrule him. And in fact, we're given very clear evidence in the passage that David can't see the whole picture. We see that when he runs into another man called Ziba. We've met Ziba before, quite a while ago now. Ziba was the servant of the previous king, Saul. His job now is to look after Saul's crippled grandson, Mephibosheth. When David came to the throne, instead of getting rid of Mephibosheth, David showed grace to him. He gave him Saul's family estate. And he gave Ziba and his sons the job of farming the land for Mephibosheth. But now, as David goes over the summit of the Mount of Olives, he finds Ziba waiting for him with transport and lots of food. A string of donkeys, plus bread, raisins, figs, and wine. Now, no doubt David is pleased to see all these supplies. But he's also a bit surprised. In verse 3, he asks Ziba, where is your master's grandson? In other words, where is Mephibosheth? You know, the crippled man you're supposed to be looking after? And in reply, Ziba says in chapter 16, verse 3, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Should David believe what Ziba tells him? What do you think? Well, a few chapters on from this, we will hear Mephibosheth's side of the story. He will tell David that Ziba betrayed him and left him helpless at home. But of course, Mephibosheth's not here on the Mount of Olives. David can't really investigate this. And in any case, David is in a pretty major hurry. He doesn't have time to dwell on his decisions. And he can't read Ziba's mind and heart. So David makes a snap decision on the spot and he takes Ziba at his word. He believes his story and he grants him all Mephibosheth's land. David is trying to be wise, but he just can't see the whole picture. In other words, he's like us 
Do you ever feel like that? You just don't really know what's going on. In fact, later on when David finally talks to Mephibosheth, he still won't really get to the bottom of this situation. So even as David plans and tries to be wise and act in line with what he knows of God's will, underneath it and around it all, he's still praying, your will be done, Lord. You see things as they really are. You do know hearts and minds. You have the whole picture in your sights. So do what seems good to you. You and I have got to try and find the same combination in our lives. Doing what seems best and most honoring to God and all the while praying, you have perfect knowledge of what's best, Lord. So your will be done. So far in this hike from Jerusalem, David has met some unusual characters. But the next one he meets takes the biscuit. Look again at chapter 16, verse 5. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. We noticed last week, there could be as many as several thousand people marching with David. And among them are his special bodyguards and his army commanders. So we can picture the scene here. These warriors are surrounding David on the march and then on some kind of ridge above their heads, Shimei is shuffling along, shouting at David and flinging stones at him. In one sense, this is a ridiculous picture. It's kind of laughable. But verse 5 reminds us the person Shimei is cursing is King David. This is God's Messiah Shimei is messing with. And in fact, Shimei is making false accusations. Now, David is certainly a sinner. We've seen that clearly in this book. But he is innocent in this case. He did not shed the blood of Saul's household. Shimei has made an embarrassing mistake. But his biggest mistake here is claiming to know God's will in this situation. He says, the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You're not God's anointed anymore, David. If you were, well, this wouldn't be happening to you. God wouldn't let it happen to you. 
Something very similar happened to another man in the Bible. His name was Job. Job suffered terrible loss in his life. And his friends assumed they knew what was going on. God must be angry at Job. How could Job suffer so much unless God was angry with him? But it turned out there was more going on than Job's friends ever realized. They hadn't figured things out as well as they thought they had. And Shimei is making a similar kind of mistake about David. Yes, David's a sinner. Yes, this whole mess with Absalom is a consequence of David's sin. God has explained that much. But God has not rejected David. He has forgiven him. And he will restore him to the throne. When it comes to God's will, Shimei knows a lot less than he thinks he knows. And as we listen to him ranting and raving, we are being warned not to make the same kind of mistakes ourselves. When someone goes through difficult times, when people go through illness, when countries are devastated by some kind of disaster, let's not be too quick to pronounce about what God's doing and what it all means. In this case, Shimei has got a pretty good handle on God's wrath. But he's ignoring God's mercy. And so he has badly misunderstood David's situation. Shimei is also making himself a massive pain in the neck. And one of David's soldiers knows how to deal with pains in the neck. Have a look at verse 9. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Abishai and his brother Joab are two of David's greatest warriors. And they also have one main solution to every problem they come across. Let's take a few heads off. That'll sort it out. That'll settle the situation down. Every time they suggest that. Now in this case, Abishai's idea might sound pretty good to the whole procession. Why did they have to put up with this idiot Shimei? Shouting and flinging stones at them. But David doesn't see it that way. Look how he replies in verse 10. The king said, what does this have to do with you? you sons of Zeruiah. If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be, that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. 
So David and his man continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. David's prayer throughout all this is, your will be done. And here we see David praying that prayer while remembering God's wrath and his mercy. Shimei, we've seen, he's only considering God's wrath. And David considers that too. David knows his own sinfulness better than anybody. David knows actually he is a scoundrel. He might not be guilty of exactly the things Shimei is accusing him of, but David knows God's wrath is part of the picture here. We saw earlier, in the wake of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, God said through the prophet Nathan, the sword shall never depart from your house, David. So David prays, your will be done, knowing full well he deserves wrath. David has no sense of entitlement. But he also remembers God's mercy. He remembers that Nathan also said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, David. Because of his own sin, David is humble in this situation. And because of God's mercy, David is also hopeful in this situation. In verse 12, the Lord may restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Literally, he may restore to me good instead of his curse today. David knows he deserves wrath, so he allows Shimei to rave on. But David also knows about God's mercy. So he doesn't give up in despair. He doesn't lie down in the middle of the road. He entrusts himself to God's hands and he keeps going. We've already noticed one application of this incident with Shimei. You and I shouldn't be too quick to pronounce on what God is doing in any situation. We need to keep in mind both his wrath and his mercy. But we would be missing something if we left it there with this passage. We've seen a dark day in David's life. Maybe the darkest day of all. We followed David as he crossed over the Kidron Valley and climbed up the Mount of Olives. We've seen him betrayed by a close friend. And we've seen him cursed and insulted. We've seen one of David's friends offer to protect David with a sword. And we've seen David refuse that human help. David will take the curse. He will entrust himself to God. A thousand years after this, 
another Messiah retraced David's steps. The New Testament tells us Jesus Christ also left Jerusalem. He also crossed the Kidron Valley and climbed the Mount of Olives. In a garden there, Jesus was betrayed by his close friend Judas. Simon Peter drew his sword to deal with the situation. But Jesus refused that kind of help. He prayed to his Father in heaven, not my will, but yours be done. We're told they hurled insults at Jesus. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They hurled their insults at him, but he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There are so many amazing parallels between David's walk and Jesus' walk. But there is one major difference. David took this walk because of his own sin. Jesus took the walk because of our sin. David deserved the curses that fell on his head. And he knew it. But Jesus deserved nothing of what he went through. The New Testament tells us he was innocent of sin. But he came under God's curse to save us from God's curse. Jesus took the full weight of God's wrath so you and I could enjoy God's mercy. So it's perfectly true. You and I don't know all the details of God's will for us. We have to acknowledge he knows more and he knows best. There's so much we don't know. But we do know this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We deserve God's curse, but he offers us mercy. We will never know all of God's will in this life. That should keep us humble. But through Jesus Christ, we can know and we can experience God's love. And it's all possible because Jesus the Messiah climbed the Mount of Olives and prayed, your will be done. So if you're doubting God's wisdom today, if you're questioning what on earth he's doing with your life, then look at Jesus on the cross. Look at Jesus on the road to the cross. He was doing his father's will. He was taking the curse you and I deserved. If God did that for us, if that was his will for us, 
Can't we trust him then to work for our good and everything else too? The final song reminds us Jesus' darkest day was for our salvation. Let's sing, Oh, to see the dawn. <clears throat>